Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Good morning and welcome to the morning briefing for Tuesday, April 10th, 2018. I'm your host, Eric Dame. Jake Hughes is your producer. And coming up on today's show, we will speak with Justin Brown, founder and CEO of HillVets. The HillVets 100 event happened just a couple of weeks ago. We haven't seen Justin since then. So we'll talk to him about that and the latest and greatest items taking place on Capitol Hill. And of course, we'll talk to Jake Hughes about the news. And that's what we're going to do right now as we bring him in. Jake, good morning. How are you today? I'm doing fantastic. Eric, how are you doing? I'm doing okay. Boy, I had your microphone up a little bit loud there. But now I think Too we're good. Loud. I, uh, I'm okay. I didn't get enough sleep last night. One of those nights where I was up late for no good reason. And ah. I probably needed about eight hours of sleep and got about five. But I was up last night, but for a perfectly valid reason, I was playing video games. Oh, well, there you go. That's, uh, that's something I don't get to do much anymore. At least not the stay up late playing them version because got to be up early in the morning for one reason or another, whether it's work on the weekdays or my son on the weekends, you know, it's just the way that it goes. The life of the family, man. Yeah. You know, maybe, maybe, uh, I don't, I don't know. I think for the majority of uh, things, it's obviously for the better. But one of the things that I do miss is those nights of like when I first got out and was in college having all my classes start in the afternoon so I could play like NHL 2012 or whatever it was uh, all night long when I got out. You missed that, but it's worth it for all the other better things that I have, like my lovely son and wife, of course. But yeah, I do miss those all night gaming sessions. Oh, those were fun. Although sometimes they would be depressing. Do you ever have that feeling where you play a game for a really long time and then you realize it and you're like, this is really what I'm doing with my life? No, not really. <laughs> you never I, get that. No, one. when I have those moments, it's like when you're a kid and you stay up all night playing video games. It's like, I stayed up all night playing video games. It was awesome. And then you grow up and you're like, I spent all night playing video games. It was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, I remember the time when I was stationed in Jacksonville. I started playing World of Warcraft. Oh, Lord. The and ultimate time sink. Boy, yeah. Did I play that a ton. It would be like, if I didn't have anything to do on the weekend, I'd just like... Swing by the liquor store, grab a bottle of wine, a couple <laughs> six-packs, come back in, grab some uh, some good, easy-to-make food, and just spend the whole weekend running around Azeroth or whatever. I think that's right, Azeroth. I, I don't know. I've never played WoW. Well. Yeah, it was a, uh, boy, it was a, it was an interesting game, and the first time I'd ever played anything like that. No, I guess that's not true. I had played EverQuest for a short time before that because a friend of mine was into it and got me into it. But, yeah, gaming, uh, it's one of those things... Uh, you know, as the family life comes along, it becomes less and less of a part. So does sports, at which I, I had a conversation. A guy who was my roommate at the Defense Information School 20 years ago messaged me out of the blue the other day. It was kind of odd. A message about the Oakland Raiders, the football team that I've cheered for for most of my life. I had to tell him, like, dude, I don't, I don't really follow football anymore. This last year, I just started not watching as much, and I didn't miss it. 
and then I didn't have to pay for the Red Zone channel that you have to pay to actually watch your team play unless you happen to live in the region where they are. Like, you know, if I were a... What is that beep? Was that your watch? No. Yes. Oh, it was Sorry. your watch? That's okay. It's like, what? What does that beep? That's a type of beep I hadn't heard in it's a long time. It's the bomb. Time. Um, the... The sports thing, like I watch less football. I don't watch any basketball anymore. Baseball is the only sport that uh, I stick to. And, of course, I watched last night as my New York Mets moved to, I believe, 7-1 and one now or something like that. No, 8-1. and one. I don't know. They've only lost one game. I do know that. And they swept the Washington Nationals, which was a thing of beauty. I think three... Three wins there, two, two, three, four, five, six, seven. They're eight and one now. There you go. Yeah, you you people out there in Radio Land, you didn't get to witness it. Yesterday, Eric joked about, oh, I'm gonna draw an anthropomorphic New York Mets sign sweeping up a bunch of W's. He actually did it. Like I was sitting there watching yeah. him do it. I didn't know he had art <laughs> talent like that. There was no point where that was a joke. That was always gonna happen. <laughs> I was formulating that idea after the Mets won the uh, the Saturday afternoon game. I was like, well, if they win Sunday, I gotta do something. So I presented that. I signed the piece of art and presented it. Even put a little art tag on it, saying like, you know, the year, the medium, the title, the artist, all that stuff. Uh, take, slate. Yeah, taking a look at the things that actually matter. Uh, we've got some big news that came out over the last couple of days, Jake, and that is that Ronnie Jackson, the nominee for secretary of the VA that nobody knows anything about other than he's a one-star admiral in the Navy, recently nominated for his second star, uh, and he's a presidential physician and has been so for uh, about 12 years or so. So dating back to the Bush administration, he's been there for a while. They all have nothing but good things to say about him. Nobody, though, knew anything about him really beyond his official Navy bio, which is in essence just a listing of awards and commands. Uh, one thing you could tell from that is that he doesn't have a lot of the experience that some people might want to see from a nominee for the VA secretary particularly in running a large business or large healthcare system or large anything, it appears the largest thing that he, he led was a trauma surgery unit, I think in Iraq is what it said, um, which is not quite the same as running a healthcare organization that has more than 300,000 employees. To put it in perspective, there's only about 340,000 people on active duty in the entire Navy. So considering that he's a career Navy officer, there's no chance, unless he were chief of naval operations, that he'd be in charge of anything anywhere near the size, even if he had run uh, military medical systems. But as our Matt Sainsing reports, he actually spoke to his hometown newspaper. Those things still exist, man. Like the Stanford <laughs> advocate for me. Of course, you're down in Houston, so you guys have the, what was it, the Houston, Houston Chronicle. Chronicle? Yeah, I was going to say. Uh, well, he's from Lubbock, Texas. How far is that from Houston? Oh, it's a good, it's probably a good day and a half, two-day drive. Wow. See, that's how big Texas is. When you're from a state like Connecticut where drive an hour and a half in any direction and you're no longer in the state, I mean, that's basically <laughs> the way it works. Unless you go far west to far east, that might take you two hours or more, depending on traffic to get through. Um, there are things that uh, you don't realize about those bigger states and how, <laughs> how big the distance is from someplace like Houston to Lubbock. Well, he talked to the Lubbock Avalanche Journal. You have a lot of avalanches down in Lubbock? Uh, not really. Yeah, I wouldn't think so. I don't know where that name came from, but I do know it's the local paper down there. And he spoke to them, and he said uh, you know, some interesting things. He talked about his 
background, his military career, said he was caught off guard by the nomination for the VA secretary position. Um, And here's a quote that comes from this Lubbock Avalanche Journal. You know, I'm not just an officer in the Navy. I'm an emergency medicine physician in the military. I've been confronted on a day-to-day basis with life and death decisions. So he seems to be saying that, you know, that's kind of his experience. Like there's no decision bigger than that which can save or lose a life. And there's a truth to that. And you know what? Who does have the kind of experience running a 300,000-person organization? Nobody. Really, if you look at it, it's the largest healthcare system in the country. So anyone running a healthcare system, it's not going to be as big as that. Um, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know anything about the guy. And honestly, I still don't know a lot about what the VA secretary actually does besides talk about things and besides make decisions. I mean, how... How difficult of a job is it? We know that it's a difficult job in the media. We know it's a difficult job with uh, the expectations of the veteran community and the community that you serve. But as far as the actual day-to-day, what exactly does it entail and how difficult is it? I mean, if this guy's been in, uh, head up a trauma surgery unit in Iraq, that's one of the most stress-filled environments that you can possibly be in. I think he can probably handle any of the stresses that come with the VA. And as a guy who is, again, an admiral, a physician, a presidential physician, you'd think he's pretty smart and he's going to be able to pick up on things pretty quickly, the things that he doesn't know about already. I would agree with that. However, I think the problem that people are looking at is that a big part of what the VA secretary does is decide policy and decide the future of healthcare, not just for uh, the 300,000 employees, but also the millions of veterans across the country. And the, the, what it comes down to for me is two questions is number one, is he finally going to let the VA do its official studies on marijuana? And number two, is he for or against privatization? Yeah, and nobody knows the answer to either of and those that's, questions. And I think that's what people are worried about is that we don't know yet. And the administration, I think, needs to come forward with a clear answer as to why they feel this man is qualified. Well, one, service in the military is deployed to a combat zone with Marines and soldiers and airmen and sailors. And that's one of the other things he says. He says, I've seen firsthand what they go through, the injuries and the things they come home with. Uh, you know, we've had people that didn't understand that much. I mean, even with some of the military veterans that we have who were far removed from any sort of uh, uh, life where they would have been in touch with uh, the the regular troops, I suppose you could say. Whereas Admiral Jackson, I mean, he, he's he deployed to Iraq fairly recently. I mean, he's a fairly recent admiral as well, although he's been the presidential physician for, again, I think it was about 11, 12 years or so. Uh, it's it's an interesting situation. It'll be interesting to keep an eye on. I, I just don't, I don't know, and no one yet has been able to convince me that this is a particularly difficult job where prior experience running a massive organization is more of a necessary qualification than military service or being a doctor or understanding those things. Um, it, it will be interesting to see where he lies on those issues. There's the privatization. There's the choice thing. Um, there are a lot of people who are for privatization. There are a lot of people who are against it. The VSOs, who we talk to every week, and we've got Hill Vets coming in in just a little while, uh, we, they all seem to be against the privatization issue For me, I see the positives of it. I see the negatives of it. I don't think either move is a completely positive or negative one. That's how I view it. And it's one where, honestly, I don't have a dog in the fight. 
I mean, as of this August, I'm no longer eligible for VA medical care for anything other than service-connected injuries that I have. So I, I, I don't particularly care. I mean, that's that's one way to put it, and that's how a lot of my friends have been saying it, the ones who don't have that medical care anymore. Um, I, I understand the positives that privatization would bring as someone who went through the VA medical system and then also went to the civilian medical system. I can tell you the care is about equal in both places. The process is much better on the civilian side, much. It's also more expensive. I mean, there's there's trade-offs for everything, but keeping everything you know entirely VA, I mean, do you trust the government to do everything? anything properly that's the question that comes out i you know that most it seems most government-led organizations have some significant issues in one way or another and the va certainly has had its shares whether on the local level which can look bad on the national organization or on the national level which of course looks bad on the local level as well i mean i think back to the news that we've had and we've talked about on the show, the Northport VA Medical Hospital on Long Island, that's the hospital where I received the majority of my VA medical care before I uh, got married and got put on my wife's insurance. That place had to shut down its surgical rooms a couple years ago when I was working in New York City News. I actually interviewed them about it for my job at 1010 Winds News Radio, and they had to shut it down because stuff started coming out of the vents. There's like bolts and dirt and all sorts of stuff into surgical rooms that are supposed to be pristine and totally cleaned out. Uh, that happened again earlier this year. I mean, there there are so many continuing issues that I understand the people who say privatize it. Just take it out of the hands of these people. They clearly don't know what they're doing, and I'm tired of it. And if you've been dealing with that since Vietnam, since Korea, I mean, if you've been dealing with it for Six seven years, you'd be. It, it would get a little frustrating when you have issues. We've talked about the the one minor issue that you recently had. It's frustrating, but if you're someone who's been dealing with it for decades and hasn't seen any improvement or enough improvement in your eyes, then I can totally understand why you would say take it away from these people. I'm tired of waiting for them because those people who served in Vietnam and Korea, they don't have all that much time left. Let's be honest. If you served as an 18-year-old in Vietnam, you're pushing 70 today, no matter what point in the war you came through. it. I mean, it's it's a fact. Korean War veterans, there's fewer every day. World War II veterans, there aren't many left. It's, uh, it, it's something where they don't have time to sit around and wait for change. So I think that's where that, that angle of the discussion comes from and needs to be understood that, listen, you may say, well, things are moving in the right direction. Well, for someone who's only got five, 10 years left in their life, they don't really care about what's going to be happening 10, 15 years from now if that's not when they're going to be around, you know? I mean, it uh, makes sense to me. I kind of understand. It makes 100% sense to me. And as someone who uh, had issues with the VA, like, again, all bureaucratic issues, every single issue that I had with the VA was related to paperwork or the personnel who checked you in the day I've talked in many times about the day where I was on time for my appointment. I was early for my appointment and ended up not being seen for like two and a half hours after that. And finally realizing how much time had passed there, that, that if that keeps happening to you repeatedly decades, 40, 50 years, and you're dealing with the same thing. Oh, I'd be tired of it. If I were one of those people, I'm a hundred percent certain I'd be calling for privatization of the VA too. So for those who say, oh, there's no excuse for wanting to privatize the VA, try to put yourself in their shoes and try to see it how they're seeing it. And I think it it at least makes a little bit more sense. But uh, we'll see what Admiral Jackson believes. 
As we talked about with IAVA yesterday, you know, he's coming from the DOD health system, which is another large government-run medical system. So you might think, hey, this guy's coming from that system. He's going to be positive when it comes to the VA. He's going to be positive on government health systems because that's where he's coming from. Eh, maybe not. Yeah. I left the Navy, and there's a lot of things I don't like that I would change about the way the Navy's run if I could. Is that how he's going to view the VA, saying, you know what, there's a lot of things that need to be changed. I'm going to be the one to change them. Uh, it's it's an interesting discussion. I think, though, that the fact that in this interview with the uh, the Lubbock Avalanche Journal that Admiral Jackson said he was caught off guard by the nomination, I think that is actually kind of a good sign, and I think that means that President Trump, some people would say, oh, he just nominated, didn't even tell him, didn't even do his research into what this guy believes, what he thinks. I think that he went based on this guy's medical acumen, his service to the military, and didn't take into account his uh, his political views. Because really, it should be a non-political position heading up the VA. It's not about which party you're a member of. It's about what you want to do for veterans. So I think that could be a good sign, the fact that he was surprised by this. Maybe he and the president had some conversations about the VA and, you know, maybe can you imagine if you're him and you just had a present conversation with your patient, the president, like, you know, if I were in charge over at the VA, you know what I'd do is blah, 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 blah. And then, you know, a couple months later, you're actually put in charge. (laughs) Oh, yeah, that's what you want to do, huh? Well, we're going to give you a shot. So he says he's up for the job and uh, it will be. Uh, interesting to see exactly what happens. They're talking about uh, later this month, early next month, confirmation hearings for him. Um, it'll be interesting to see because there's never been a VA nominee who was not 100% voted in. All positive votes. Now, there have been people who weren't there for the vote, people who abstained from the vote, but every uh, vote that has been cast for a VA secretary has been accepting the nomination. So we'll see. As we've seen recently, if there's uh, if there's ever been a time that that might change, it might yeah. be now. Because, boy, there are some people who believe that the president, everything he does is just the worst thing ever. So do what you can to vote against it. Like when we talk about the omnibus spending bill, and we've talked to uh, several groups about it. We're going to talk to the American Legion about it tomorrow because their legislative director, Matt Schumann, he actually came up with the deal for funding the choice program that was in the omnibus spending bill. He went on vacation, was told it was going to pass, came back, and it had been pulled out by, uh, you know, you hear from various groups of people. Nancy Pelosi is one name that keeps coming up as someone who pulled that out of there uh, in order to keep the Democrats who are facing elections, who wanted to kind of ceremoniously vote against the omnibus spending bill, not because they thought it would stop it from passing, but because they wanted to take a stand against Trump. And that would be great on their campaign. We voted against President Trump's omnibus spending bill. Well, if it included a lot of things that were really good for veterans, then the con would look very yeah, bad. Their competition could go, oh, you did vote against that. And it was the one that was going to give this to veterans, this to veterans, this to veterans. So uh, that, among other things, it's not just veteran stuff that was pulled out of there. Um, you know, it's it's one of those things that just uh, kind of happens. Another thing that kind of happens when you're in the military is PCS moves, Jake. How many of those did you make while you were in the Army? Let's see. One, two, three, four, five. Five. And I did. Well, let's let's not count boot camp, all right? So not boot camp to A school doesn't count. So we'll we'll count leaving A school as the first one. So let's see. To Iceland, to Norfolk, to Italy, to Jacksonville, to 
Suda Bay to Guam to Afghanistan. So seven for me in 13 years. So basically a little bit less than uh, every two years I moved. It was like every year and eight months or something like that on average. It's kind of difficult and it's it's a process where things move quickly, really. Like you put in for orders to someplace. I don't know how it works in the Army, but in the Navy, you request orders through your detailer. That's the person who's going to decide where you go for your job. And then you find out like, yep, you got it or nope, you didn't get it. And you're leaving, you're not leaving, you're going, you're not going. Uh, there are different ways in the services. Like how does it work in the Army when you were looking to go someplace, when it was time for uh, new orders or whatever? How did that whole process work? The same basic way you call your branch manager who is the person in charge of your MOS or whatever your job is and say, hey, I want to go here. And he looks at the, how many you know, how many NCOs or soldiers they need there and all that other stuff and say, well, you wanted this, but guess what? You're going here. Hmm. Well, it appears that the way the Air Force did it was a little bit different. So in the Navy, particularly as you got uh, higher ranking, as you became a petty officer, third class, second class, first class, especially, uh, you'd call the detailer, you'd speak to them on the phone. They'd say like, well, I got openings here, 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 and here. Any of those sound good to you? You know, I need someone who, with your skill set who can go here, who can go there. In the Air Force, they had something called the Base of Preference System. Now, I speak about the Air Force positively when it comes to the way that they do things because they do things pretty well. They live a nice lifestyle. Everything's beautiful. Everybody's got their own personal golf cart. We know all the great things. They're about the, the brains. Air Force. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they were at least smart enough to join the Air Force. So that's, exactly. Uh, that speaks well for them. But under the old base of preference system, airmen would submit requests for where they wanted to be assigned, where they wanted to be stationed. But here's the thing under this system, you just said, like, I want to go here, here, and here. And it had nothing to do with if there were actually any vacancies. So you could put, like, your three places that you wanted to go, your three top places. What are three Air Force bases? Uh, Minot Air Force Base in North Dakota. I don't think anybody's ever put that nope. on their top three. Uh, Anderson Air Force Base, which is, uh, I think, in Guam. Or uh, what's Nellis. one down here? Nellis in Nevada. Yeah, there you go. Um, you have those three on there. If they don't have a spot for an Air Force golf cart technician you could end up being sent to you know langley or someplace else where you had no desire to go no want to go well they're going to have a new system that they began testing this month where bases <laughs> and this is so air force this is in military times bases will advertise what jobs they have available on a <laughs> quarterly basis i picture I, <laughs> I picture these these Images with like palm trees for like Anderson Air Force Base. Be like, come to Guam. It's beautiful. We got diving, like actual advertisements. I mean, it's probably obviously not going to like be. They'll but. go with like the little team with carnival cruises to, for all the tropical places. Yeah. This is, uh, it's going to give transparency to the airmen, they say, when they request their next locations, according to the uh, Air Force Personnel Center. So they're not taking, quote, shots in the dark which I can't believe that that's the way the Air Force did it, that they didn't actually allow people to know when they were making those. I mean, we were able to talk to a human being, the one person for your job. And in some jobs, there were several people for different specialties and things like that. For me, we just had the one for the journalist and then later mass communication specialist, uh, who by the end, uh, my last... My last PCS was actually my former boss, so I was able to call him up and be like, hey, Master Chief, how you doing? That's what it would be. It would be a senior enlisted person from the rate, knew what was necessary. You'd talk to him, and you'd basically know by the end of that phone call where you were going. 
Yeah, and it, it works similarly, but I, and I have to admit that it is similar the way the Air Force was to the way the Army does is, and you can request to go wherever you want. I can request yeah. to go to Fort Hood because I want to be close to home, but right. if they need people in Korea, guess what? You're going to Korea. And the thing about this is that with the airmen, they could request that, but then they wouldn't know until they got orders what happened with their request. With us, you got to know right away. I could go to you know the Master Chief. I could be like, hey, Master Chief. I want to go to uh, the, the Naval Postgraduate School at Monterey, California. Beautiful place. A lot of people want to go there. Not a lot of openings there. He would say no. I wouldn't. I wouldn't be thinking. You know, fingers crossed, hoping for months that oh, I'm going to get orders to Monterey. No, I would know almost immediately that I wasn't going to Monterey, uh, which it looks like the Air Force is still not moving to that direction. They still want everything to be automated, and that's one thing that I just don't care for, man. I had yeah, one of those I things. Agree. Last week where I was calling, who was I calling? Oh, my son's physician. Uh, we found a tick on him after we went walking in the woods oh my God. on Easter. So we found a tick on him and we're like, well, let's bring him to the doctor, see what they say about it. And calling the child's doctor to make an appointment or to get them to call back with medical advice, I had to go through like eight different menus, all automated menus. If I had been able to speak to a person, it would have been over in 30 seconds. Instead, I'm spending five minutes. And I suppose they look at it like, well, our person didn't spend five minutes talking to you about it so that saves us time in man hours yeah but it irritates your customers you might want to think about that too but hey what do i know all i know is this is the morning briefing here on intercoms connectingvets.com still to come we are going to speak with justin brown founder and ceo of hill vets he'll be joining us shortly we're going to talk about the hill vets 100 gala that i was honored to attend it's also a great air force joke made there by ken falk uh, founder of boulder crest retreat got the biggest laugh of the night even bigger than the great comedian who was there doing a performance so we're going to talk to justin about the hill vets 100 as well as the latest developments on capitol hill in regards to veterans it's morning briefing back after this helping military veterans stay connected. We make it easy. We are CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter at ConnectingVets. Welcome back to The Morning Briefing. I'm your host, Eric Dame. Jake Hughes is your producer. And you know how I said Justin Brown was coming up in just a moment? Well, about that. <laughs> We've got our new format, and uh, there was a schedule, there was a schedule uh, that's changed a little bit. So we were so used to Justin coming in for the second segment of the show. Well, today, he's going to be in for the third segment of the show. So for those of you waiting for your Justin Brown fix, you just have to wait for a few more minutes. And he'll be with us right here to talk about the Hill Vets 100 Gala and so much more. Because there's always a ton going on regarding veterans on Capitol Hill. And around the country, and that's why you need to be checking out ConnectingVets.com on a daily basis. And also following us on social media, where we are at ConnectingVets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. And if you go to that site right now, one of the stories you'll see on the homepage is from our own Jakerton Q. Hughes. Wow, how did you know my full name? I just, you know... I do my research on everyone I work with. Got to know how to tear people down if I need to. I mean, if I need to go scorched earth, I need to be able to do it fully, Jakerton. Wow. So uh, this story is something that we actually talked about a little bit earlier, and that is video games and specifically indie games and some games that you think 
people need to play. Now, I am a gamer, again, as we already talked about, not to the level that you are, at least not anymore. Also, I was never a huge PC gamer. You mm. guys are more extreme PC than us. PC Master Race. Us console uh, little people. Console plebs. Yeah, yes. Yes, that's fine. All right. Well, take me on in any of the games that I play on the console, and we'll see how Master Race you're feeling after that. All right. So these five indie games that you need to play, I looked through the list, and there's some of them that I've heard of, some of them that I haven't. All right. Number one, Cuphead. I've actually heard of Cuphead. I think they may have played it on Conan O'Brien's Clueless Gamer. He knows nothing about games and plays games. I think he played it with, like, Oh, the woman who's on the cover of Sports Illustrated, married to Justin Verlander of your Astros, uh, Kate. Uh, I don't know. Something. Yeah, yeah, very beautiful woman. Anyway, uh, yeah. so what's Cuphead all about? It looks kind of like a, a goofy game, almost like animated in the style of like old-timey cartoons. Yes, it's a hand-drawn, hand-animated uh, video game. It's a 2D platformer that has heavy elements of what we would call bullet hell which basically means there's constantly projectiles coming at you. You have to dodge, you have to parry things, all while maintaining fire on the boss or getting to the stage as end of the stage as quickly as possible. Hmm. It kind of is interesting that over the last, I'd say the last 10 years or so, there's been a movement back towards, as as you said, in your game speak, the 2D platformers. Those are the games we grew up with. Your yeah. Sonic the Hedgehog, Super Mario Brothers, these get from point A to point B, jumping and all that stuff. And as you talked about the bullet hell thing, think of games like Oh, what was the one where you were in like the spaceship flying and you just went up and down and shot as you uh, went along? Uh, was it Desegia or was it Galaxa De- or something like G- that? Galaga. Galaga. There you go. So think games like that. There's been a move back to the kind of the origins of arcade video gaming and home console video gaming, of course, when you talk about Sonic and Mario. Uh, with these new games that have great graphics, they have better mechanics, they're basically able to make uh, a, a side-scrolling game like like we used to play when we were kids, but for the modern age and make it really cool. And in this one, I mean, what is it about this game that you think sets it apart from the other ones out there that are similar? Is it that hand-drawn aspect of it? For me, it is the hand-drawn aspect and the the soundtrack is amazing. Like I don't know if you've ever watched cartoons from the 30s like Bosco or something like oh, that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it looks just like that, and the music fits it well. And But I think what really sets it apart is the difficulty. As mm. I say in the article, I hate people that do this, but it, people have compared it to Dark Souls in terms of how difficult it is. And right. that it, while it's nowhere near the same type of game, I understand where they're coming from because it is that same punishing yet fair gameplay that right. like one the kind of thing that when you first start playing is insanely hard but once you get into the rhythm it becomes easy why is it called cuphead because the main character is has a cup for a head and oh. his brother is called Mugman, who has a mug for a head. Well, that makes a little bit more sense, I suppose. So that one is number one on your list. So, I mean, if does that mean it really is number one? If you have to suggest one of these five games, is that the first one you're telling people? I would say yes, but this one's more for the hardcore gaming crowd because, as I said, it is very unforgiving. Yeah. So if you're a casual gamer, you may want to skip this one. Mm. And uh, that one is available, I think, on pretty much every console at this point. It's available on the Xbox, the PlayStation, the PC, all that yes. stuff. So you can check it out no matter where you are. And, yeah, of course, those 1930s games. And my son has become a fan of Pee Wee's Playhouse 
Do you remember oh, the, wow. the, the king of cartoons who would come in and yeah. show like an old fair use cartoon that Pee Wee didn't need to pay royalties on, yeah. essentially? <laughs> so you see a lot of those old style cartoons. Uh, so very interesting game. Now, this next one, uh, not in the style of 30s cartoons from what I see, and it's actually one that I've never heard of before. Cuphead, I was at least aware of. The Forest. What's the forest all oh, about? Oh, this one's very mysterious. The It's one of the kind of games where you're not given a lot of direction. In a nutshell, you're the lone survivor of a plane crash. And mm. it's all it's survival horror with more emphasis on survival in that you're alone in this forest. You have to scavenge for supplies, for food. You have to fight off waves of these mutated cannibal people all while looking for your son and slowly unraveling the mystery of the island. So basically, it's like Lost, but with only half the plot drag. Ah, or like Silent Hill, it sounds a little bit similar. That is a good app comparison, yes. I remember playing the first Silent Hill in the barracks at the Defense Information School. I got it while I was there. Didn't even know what it was about. Played it. I wouldn't play it alone. Like at (laughs) night, I would have like buddy. we'd, We'd all sit in there and play it together and try to figure out the puzzles and everything. But Games can be terrifying. They can be when they, they want really to be. Can. There's jump scares like in uh, the first Resident Evil when that dog comes up to the window thing. Yeah. And that That's a jump scare. But then there's those those I tend to enjoy more and be freaked out more by the ones with that atmosphere of creepiness. Is that yeah. more what this one is? Yeah, it's not so much jump scare so much as this the kind of feeling of dread and that danger could be around every corner and you're isolated and alone on a, in a hostile environment. Mm. And it looks like it's a first-person perspective game. Is it a yes. shooter at all? Or No, you're, you're going to be fighting with clubs and, and uh, a hand axe. You can build traps out of you know punji sticks and, mm. and uh, twine to ward off the cannibals and stuff. As you play the game, you do pick up some more modern supplies like climbing rope and things like that. But no guns. No guns or anything like that. And that game, again, I hadn't heard of it. Is it out on any of the consoles or anything? No, I believe it's PC only, and it is still in uh, early access, which means they're adding content every day. The special thing about this game that I did not know until I wrote the article, the team that made this game, and it's an immense island, sprawling map, only four people designed this game. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's amazing what people can do. I mean, things that used to take... A team of hundreds can now be done by four people, you know, spending their time at home because computers have gotten more powerful. Coders and programmers have gotten so much better and and, and as have the the software programs that they're using. So really interesting stuff uh, when you look at the history of video games. Look at how many people it took to make Sonic the Hedgehog, for an example, compared to the four people who made this and Sonic. It's a lot more simple and a lot more repetitive. Keep that in mind. Sonic, I think you played each level twice to get through to actually beat it. So, yeah, interesting stuff there. Here's one that I don't even know how to pronounce the name of. <laughs> this I'm, 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 I may go after you for this one. This looks like a weird game. This looks like something strange going on. I believe it comes. I'm just guessing based on the name and the style of it that this comes from the island nation of Japan, where some of the strangest things in the world also come from. So what is Doki Doki Literature Club? You pronounced it right. Good I job. thought I would. I'm pretty and it is that. not from Japan. It is heavily inspired from Japan. It was ah. made by one person here in the States. And it's the kind of game I can't describe it too much without giving something away. It starts off as what's called a dating simulator, which basically means it's a visual novel. You read read text dialogue, and there's a mechanic where you can, quote-unquote, write poems. It will give you a list of words, 
and you pick a word, and there's little sprites of the girls in the club, and the the one who, if you pick the right word, that one girl will jump, and that that means that she was going to like the poem more, so you get closer to the girl you like. Right. However, as you play the game, uh, once you start getting into it, you start realizing that something's not quite right. And, oh, by the way, what's this warning that this game is not for people who are easily disturbed? Yeah, I just clicked on the trailer that you have on the article. Again, that's at ConnectingVest.com, and it starts off with the stream saying... This game is not suitable for children or those who are easily disturbed. And that description that you just read was kind of disturbing enough to me. <laughs> you also may have been, may as well have been speaking Chinese while explaining the mechanics of this game uh, to me. So I'm looking through it now, just clicking through the video. And yeah, it does have that look of, uh, I've heard about the Japanese dating simulators, which are essentially like you go through a game and it's a relationship based game. So this one is that with a twist. Is that what you're saying? Essentially? Yes, but the, the twist comes and it gets progressively more and more into it. And again, I can't say more without giving it away. Uh. Yeah, I would say if you are at all interested in psychological horror, I would definitely pick this game up and mm. it takes a few hours to get into it. But once you do, it is wholly worth it. And how long of a game is it? It looks like one of those ones is probably not going to take the longest time. No, to play. I beat the game in I think four hours. Yeah, so kind of a, a you know a smaller smaller task than some yes. of the other games that can take days or months for you to beat. Okay, number four on the list. Another one that I haven't heard of. So, so far, I'm one for four, I think, on the games that I've heard of. <laughs> it's called This War of Mine. And it looks like, well, it looks pretty interesting. It kind of has the look, as I look at it, of the old Fallout games, although not a top-down game. Right, but, the more isometric view ones. Right, so what's This War of Mine about? This is a game that loves to remind you that in war, not everyone is a soldier. And mm. as I say in the article, we've all played as the genetically enhanced super soldier or the squad leader of the plucky group of hardcore survivors. In this one, you play as a civilian caught in a war-torn city between two warring factions, and it's all about eking out a meager living. You have to find food. You have to find medical supplies. And sometimes that involves stealing from other people. And then it's that sort of morality system where you'll meet someone that's got like three kids and saying, please, I need this medicine. I need this food or whatever. But you have your own group of survivors you have yeah. to take care of. And so it's a very bleak game. It's th This is not sunshine and rainbows. No, and most games aren't these days, let's be <laughs> honest. But looking through this does look a little dark. I'm watching a little bit of the gameplay right now. It's kind of a uh, kind of a side scroller, but a little bit different. It's not a platformer. Right. It's, uh, it's a little bit more involved than that. But really, uh, really looks like an interesting game. This is the kind of game that I feel like I could probably out of all the ones on the list so far. I think this is the one that interests me the most. And and that's that's a unique perspective. And that's one of those things that games. I kind of break the mold on where you'll have one and then you'll have a bunch of copycats after it where you'll have, you know, people like Bethesda who do their games like the Elder Scrolls series, which then led to a whole bunch of other first person role playing games. And of course, their own other series Fallout uh, when they moved to first person uh, from the overhead view, just like they did with the Elder Scrolls and stuff like that. This one, uh, it looks pretty brilliant to me it looks like from start to finish the idea the execution it looks like a very uh, attractive game as well so looks like really uh someone someone did some good stuff there is how i would say it essentially yeah i do think this is this is a, that's the thing with indie games is that like you said people can make games with not a huge team or millions of dollars 
So there is a lot of crap out there. You yeah, know? Yeah. yeah, there is a lot of like troll games or horribly designed games. But if you sort through the detritus, yeah. I'll say, to use my calendar, my word day calendar. Yeah, yeah, the garbage. <laughs> you can find some real gems, and this War of Mine is one of them. Yeah, and it really, uh, that's that's one I might have to check out. Now, is that a PC game? Yes, or, uh, it's a PC game, but it's not very graphic intensive. So even if you have a decent computer or laptop, you should be able to play it. I don't know if my laptop is decent or not. I know it's on its last legs, and it's about time for me to get a new one. So I would say wait till you get the new one. Yeah, uh, and then number five on the list. So now I'm going to be two for five on whether I've heard of the games on Jake's list of five indie games you need to play. You can find it on ConnectingVets.com, and it has the uh, the trailers and gameplay of each of the games on there. This one has the look of the games like the mid-90s Japanese role-playing games that would come out. Um, you can think to, oh, Final the, Fantasy. Yeah, the old-school Final Fantasy games. Final Fantasy and the other ones like that, um, Star Ocean and things like that. Has that look, uh, well, kind of the look of it. doesn't have yeah, the look a, as far yeah, as the battle. An overhead sprite game. Yeah, where you got little cartoon characters moving around called Stardew Valley. Now, I have heard some stuff about this. I know on uh, the the Deadspin Gawker family of sites, Kotaku, their site, they had uh, quite a bit of coverage of this a little while ago. It's still a game that I believe is going strong, though. Tell us about Stardew Valley and why this game has caught on so well. Stardew Valley is a farming simulator on the surface. Basically, the the, the very thin plot is that you, you uh, inherit a farm from your grandfather or something, and you have to learn to live off the land. And it's one of those games where it's very grindy in that you'll spend a lot of time you know growing a set of crops harvesting them harvesting new materials to grow better crops right. you'll explore mines to find better ore to make better tools and it's all it's finding basically doing something to get an item to do something more high level right and that's what it is and it's one of these games that's it's very relaxing to play i have mm. only played a little bit of it at a friend's house but it is very just sort of cathartic and just kind of zen yeah. to sit there and just click away at this game. Yeah, and uh, you know those relaxing games, there's something to be said for them, those that aren't like hardcore games. And I remember getting, I got a Nintendo Wii because I had disposable income and it was kind of the big thing. And I got one when I was over in Greece. We never went out in Greece. We went out like every other weekend for a night and that was it. Other than that, we'd stay in friends come over play video games watch movies or whatever and there was a game on there that was uh that was very lighthearted and easy and relaxing to play animal crossing are there any similarities between this and like an animal crossing that is a very good analogy there is a lot of the same kind of mechanics there like for example there there's a town you can go to interact with people and i'm pretty sure you can get quests from them like but a quest isn't like produce this much corn or find this kind of ore, chop down this many trees or something. Mm. Well, that is the list of the five indie games that you need to play, according to our own Jake Hughes, who spends a lot of his free time playing those video games, so he knows of what he speaks. Now, one more video game question for you, Jake, and that is are there any games coming out that you're really like excited for? There's some anything that you're just ready to be out already this 2018 is a big year uh the the one of them is the red dead redemption 2 from Ooh, rockstar games yeah that looks really good but the one i am super pumped for that comes out i believe in a week and a half is the new god of war for it's a playstation exclusive right. but it if you play the it looks I'm, I'm stuttering because it looks amazing. The mechanics of the game, the look and feel, you get into like Norse mythology and things like that. I am so pumped for this game. 
And when you were over for the fights this weekend, the commercial for that came on. And we actually talked about it a little bit when the commercial came on because I said, I've never played any of these games. I'm an Xbox guy. It's a PlayStation game. It's one of those things. I will say Red Dead Redemption is one of the great games. Uh, Grand Theft Auto on horseback, yep. as some people called it. But really a, a fascinating game. Uh, all, not only just the, the game itself, but the story of it. The fact that, you know, spoiler alert for a game that's, what, seven years old now or whatever it is, <laughs> uh, even more than that. God, I think that came out, maybe that came out while I was in Greece, too, I think. Uh, 2009? That sounds about right. 2008, 2009, something like that. Yeah, so it's been out for a long time. So if you haven't played it yet, uh, sorry, whatever. <laughs> uh, the fact that you play as the, uh, the the character that you are and you think, like, that's the character I'll be for, and then your character dies, and then you play his side. Just some very interesting things like that. Uh, that that popped up throughout that game. So I didn't know that there was a sequel to that coming out this year. I'd heard that there were rumors years ago of a sequel, but see, that's what happens. I'm not in and up on the video game knowledge and news quite as much as I used to be. I do pay attention to a lot of the other news that's going on out there. And one is uh, the National Guard being sent down to the border. And Arizona ah, yes. and Texas have sent 400 troops to the border after the president called for it. This is in response to his call for troops to fight drug trafficking and illegal immigration. Uh, Arizona Governor Doug Ducey has about 150 Guard members deploying this week in the Texas National Guard. Says it was already sending Guardsmen to the border last week with plans to place 250 troops there by yesterday. So about 400 in total. You're from Texas, although you're from Houston, which of course is eastern Texas. And I mean, the only thing that the Houston area borders is the Gulf of Mexico, not the actual, right. not actual Mexico. So, uh, you know, though, as a native Texan, how do you view this story when you look at that with the National Guard going down to the border? I mean... It's kind of right there in their name, National Guard, guard the nation. This is kind of one of the things that they're supposed to do. So uh, how do you view it, though, with them going down there? I think that on the one hand, it's a good thing because they're, they're commenting drug trafficking and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, number two, I, I don't know the legality of them enforcing immigration policy. Like, is that going to be any sort of like, because I know that that's ICE's job, not ISIS, ICE, 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 obviously. Yeah. I don't know why I clarified that. But anyway, <laughs> it's not ISIS's job. We haven't hired them out to do that. No, not yet. We're not that desperate yet. Um, but I don't know if there is like they're allowed to enforce those laws. They're allowed to guard the border. That's all that they're doing. Well, yeah. I mean, that's what. And, and I've heard that argument before uh, from some people who are. It seemed fishing for a reason for them not to be allowed to go down and do yeah, this. And, but, and I think I, I agree with them going down there because yeah. I agree. I mean, regardless of your stance on immigration or illegal immigration, we do have a problem in this country of people coming across the border. We have no idea who they are, what they're carrying with them, and it's a security risk. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing about the whole illegal immigration debate. I've never heard one good reason why we shouldn't know exactly who comes into the country. Oh, we absolutely should. And that's another thing. Like, uh, you know, I was sitting there watching and with all that's going on in California where numerous counties and cities and towns are now saying like, no, this sanctuary policy is not okay. Like we have a severe problem and this is something that needs to be dealt with, not just bury our hand, heads in the sand about it in order to make some sort of political point uh, because you don't like the president. There is a real problem, not only with illegal immigration, but with people committing crimes who are not in the country legally and then not being deported. Because places like San Francisco won't turn them over. I mean, these, these are criminals. These are not 
your uh, illegal immigrant who does everything other than that the right way, that just goes about their day and goes about their business. People arrested for assault, violent crimes, who were then not turned over to the federal authorities to be deported. I mean, it, it's it's insane to me. It just it doesn't make any sense. And I have yet to have someone, like you said, explain to me why we shouldn't know who's coming into the country or, two, why those who commit crimes specifically should be deported out of the country and in san francisco my goodness that's where you had the story of the illegal immigrant who uh, shot into a crowd and hit the young woman who was there visiting her father she was killed and his claim was oh i found a gun wrapped in a t-shirt under a bench yeah i I picked it up and it and it went off and uh, just happened to hit this girl didn't seem to jibe with any other uh part of the story it just seemed like oh that's a nonsense claim this was a crazy person who's trying to come up with an excuse for uh, this horrible thing that they did guess what wasn't charged with the most serious charges (laughs) like they basically let him off and he'd already been deported seven times before and guess what when he's released they were like well we don't know if he's going to be deported or not we have a sanctuary policy come on stop it any crime is committed get out we've talked about we talked about this with the issue of the veteran who was deported and I got a message from him and from his mother. They yeah, weren't happy with it. But you know what? Sorry, you broke the law. You you were not yet a citizen. You made the choice not to become a citizen over a very long period of time. In that case, you got to go. That's how it works. But now we've got things going on where, again, be, to make a political point, it seems, because I don't like President Trump, I'm going to do this. And yeah, it may cause problems for the people who actually live here and the citizens of this country who should actually be protected by the laws and by everything else. Uh, yeah, oh, well, I got to make my political point. Yeah, it's uh, it's insane. I don't get it. But the National Guard thing, I mean, I've, it, it seems that with most things, anything that the president decides, it falls along political lines on what people think or don't think. I don't I don't love the guy. I don't hate the guy. I think he's the president and I watch what he does and I look at it each thing that's done on an individual basis and this one I don't have any problem with this. I mean, you know, there there is the question of, well, are they legally allowed to do you know, they're legally allowed to guard the border? And the National Guard in times of crisis is also called in to do things, everything from firefighting to supplementing the police forces to doing all sorts of different things. So, I mean, it's, it's an organization that, yeah, there are limitations on what they can do. And no, probably you nor I know exactly what all of those limitations are because you never served in the National Guard. Nope. I never served in the National Guard. Navy doesn't even have a National Guard. There's Air National Guard, National Guard. There's no Navy National Guard. Why do you think that is? Because we have the Coast Guard. Oh. So the Coast Guard is kind of like the National Guard for the Navy. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Full of really tall people. Yes. All over, they have to walk all home. over six foot two. In case their boats thinks they can walk home. <laughs> Take that, Coasties. All right. Well, you're listening to the morning briefing, and Justin Brown, I can confirm, is now in the house because, well, that's the time that he was scheduled to be here. <laughs> Before I, uh, our new schedule, you know, there's going to be little bumps in the road that we have to iron out, but we got to talk about Jake's five indie games and go check that out on connectingvets.com. And of course, follow us on social media at Connecting Vets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, content like that and content totally unlike that. We've got stuff on the National Guard border dispute. We've got uh, stories on the VA secretary nominee, Ronnie Jackson, that we already talked about today and so much more, including great stories on veteran entrepreneurs 
and more of those coming every day. Some morning briefing back after this with Justin Brown of Hill Vets. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. 